Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Good morning. Today is the day. This is the day the Lord has made. We're going to rejoice. We are going to be glad in it. Uh, No matter what the news is today, we are going to be good news obsessed. Uh, Those are our, uh, that's who we're going to be as the people of God in the world today. We're not going to be news obsessed. We're going to be good news obsessed. Uh, And okay, so um, I I have a conversation uh, keyed up here to have with Dan Darling from the ERLC, which is the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Church. And um, and because the content that I want to cover with Dan is mammoth, it's mammoth, um, I'm going to go ahead and bring him on uh, right now. So hopefully uh, he has um, swallowed his last sip of coffee. Dan Darling is joining us now via Skype. Uh, you can find him online at ERLC.com. You can find him on Twitter at Dan Darling. Welcome back, my friend. Hey, it's great to be with you, Carmen. How are you doing this morning? Well, thanks for being on early, and uh, thanks for being on on short notice. I um, I really appreciate it. The piece that is posted at Facts and Trends, um, which you uh, which you wrote, is nine questions to ask yourself before arguing online. But the underlying um, piece that I also want to discuss is the faith in a healthy democracy resource that you guys at the ERLC posted, and the underlying Lifeway research study that you did um, related to that. So, I, I if we can, I want I want to cover this. I want to at least give people the initial taste and see on all of this. Do you think we can do that? Yes, absolutely. This is a, it's a great uh, bit of research on evangelicals and uh, civility. It is. So I, I've printed out like, you know, 50 of the 70 some pages because I uh, because I wanted it. And I guess I'm going to turn and also say I hope it's going to be published in some kind of form that people don't have to themselves print out the full thing. Am I is it <laughs> headed toward being published in some digestible way? Well, that's a good that's a good uh, idea, and I think I think it's something we're looking into. Okay, good. Okay, so um, all of our publishing friends who are listening this morning, um, this this would be great. We need it in our hands as soon as possible. Okay, so Dan, why ask the questions that you guys asked in this piece? What were you observing in the culture? What are you observing in your work at the ERLC that led you to want to ask these questions um, of of evangelicals in particular, but of the American public uh, writ large? Well, I just think it's good for us to kind of get a survey of where where evangelical Christians are in terms of, um, you know, how they gather their news, how we gather our news, how we um, how we process the news. And, you know, we are we are in very divided times. We're very polarized times. I don't know that we're more divided than we've ever been, as some people say, because if you know American history, there's been times of deep, deep division. What's what's unique about our times is is. Um, the way that our digital platforms allow us to sort of uh, kind of be sorted into tribes that hardly ever interact with each other and the way that digital platforms kind of incentivize um, incivility. And so we just wanted to kind of get a look at that and, and say, what are some positive trends? What are some negative trends? And how can, how can Christians be a part of the solution instead of uh, contributing to the problem? 
Okay, and I like that your goal here is to really kick off a dialogue uh, among Christians and churches and seminaries and uh, and the public um, and the media. And so um, I, I do think that engaging in the content is important. Tell us what you learned. Well, first of all, tell us about sort of the approach that you took, because it's a little bit different um, than we might first think if we were going to just think about polling people in general. Talk about the approach that you took, the questions that you ask, and then um, a, a sense of the feedback you got. Yeah, so we partnered with LifeWay Christian Research, and I mean, one of the things that was really key for us was polling actual evangelical Christians, people who, um, you know, actually meet what we would consider at least a, a minimum standard for what it means to be a, an evangelical belief in, in, in Jesus Christ is the only way to God, and, and several other metrics that sort of um, mark out people that way. And so that kind of you know, the, the term evangelical is thrown around a lot by the media, you know, anybody who goes to church or, or whatever like that. And so we wanted to kind of pull faithful church-going evangelical Christians um, and get their sense of things. Um, and the th- a few things stick out to me, a positive and negative. A positive um, is that uh, it, it, it wasn't surprising to me, but it was, it was affirming in, in some ways that holding deeply – held beliefs such as the exclusivity of Christ or even our beliefs on uh, the sanctity of human life uh, does not necessarily make people less civil. It actually makes them more civil. So LifeWay uh, Research uh, created what they call a civility index or civility score. Um, and holding deeply held beliefs does not make people less civil. It makes them more civil. However, there are some factors that do contribute to incivility, such as uh, the fact that people get their news from sources that they like um, and the fact that many Christians uh, never really interact with people outside of their tribe. And, and so those are things that contribute to incivility. I also thought it was very interesting that the more Christians listen to um, – well-known national Christian leaders on politics, the less civil they become. And I think that's that's a real issue. That's a real concern. All right, Dan and I are going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're actually going to walk through the nine questions we should each ask ourselves before arguing online. I'm talking with Dan Darling from the ERLC. You can find him at ERLC.com. You can find what we're talking about today at factsandtrends.net. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation now with Dan Darling. You can follow him on Twitter at Dan Darling. I do. Uh, you can also check out what we're talking about today. He has a piece posted at factsandtrends.net entitled Nine Questions to Ask Yourself Before Arguing Online. Um, Dan, uh, nine might be more than we can cover unless we do so quickly. So, um, uh, first of all, I love that you introduced in here the civility index, and I loved that you gave a direct link to the uh, Faith in a Healthy Democracy PDF. I thought that was um, – that's just actually a real gift in, in the midst of an article, so thank you for that. Um, so the nine things that uh, have been helpful to you are what you share here. Let's just go through them. Uh, what's the what's the number one thing? Where's my starting point when I consider uh, responding or engaging online, let's say in Twitter, Facebook, these kinds of environments, in the comment section of an article? Uh, those would all be places and spaces where people engage online. 
Uh, what's maybe the first question I should ask myself? Well, the first one is, am, am I actually qualified to speak to this issue at this time? Which I know is con- is um, countercultural because everybody's a pundit and everybody's an expert. Um, in fact, I like what Kevin Williamson said about uh, – it said that the internet has – social media has made everyone a pundit, which he says a pundit is something – like a cross between a clown and a preacher. <laughs> so, you know, am, am I qualified to, to comment? You know, it, it could be that um, I don't know all the facts or I don't know much about this particular field. And if I don't, I actually don't have to tweet about it. I don't have to face, I don't have to post on Facebook. Uh, there's nothing telling me that I have to have an opinion right now about something about which I know very little. So I had this experience um, yesterday, uh, in part after reading what you had written, and I thought, well, I'm going to I'm going to test myself on this a little bit. Um, And I came across something that I I was it it totally it I it out. I was genuinely outraged. Mm -hmm. I also could find no no way to repost, retweet, comment. I, I found I could find I mean, after like searching, searching, searching my heart and mind, I could find no beneficial way to uh, use the platform that God's given me to actually then put that out there in front of other people. I just, I, I, so I actually DM'd a mutual friend of ours and said, I'm, I'm just sending this to you because I, I have to do something with it. And, and I know that you would feel like I feel about this. Like, <laughs> so that was my way of like dispensing with it. Um, mm. And so after we have asked the question, am I qualified to speak to this issue at this time? And I also think that you add in there um, on this medium, like, right. right, is this the right place for me to be commenting, even if I am qualified to speak? Number two is, am I acting on all of the relevant information which I think is uh, an important one. And then are you engaging the best arguments of your opponents? Talk about that. Yeah. So, I mean, it, I'm, I agree with Trevin Wax, who says that we actually need more arguments, not less online. So having public debates is really healthy for a democracy. Um, but it, the, the way to do it is to engage the best arguments of someone with whom I'm interacting. In other words, um, am I sort of taking a drive-by cheap shot at uh, a straw man, at, at a, someone I've constructed that's not actually the substance of the argument of someone that I'm opposing? Am I hitting them uh, at their best instead of their worst? Because I think what happens is, particularly in politics, is that we find kind of the, the worst representative of the opposing side and just go to town on that that person as if that represents the whole, um, you know, the whole field. And I think back and forth. So conservatives will find some, you know, left-wing professor in some junior college somewhere that says some weird thing and act like everybody that's liberal believes that. And uh, on the flip side, you know, liberals will find some wacky, you know, state representative somewhere that nobody knows saying some weird thing and they'll act like everybody that's conservative believes that. And I just don't think that advances anything that doesn't that doesn't promote a healthy uh, civility um that one actually and that number three on your list um and then number four are you giving people the benefit of the doubt um both of those dan made me like recall in my mind this conversation that i had with bruce ashford about the logical fallacies Mm -hmm. that we fall into frequently and i thought that was um 
uh, this number four, are you giving people the benefit of the doubt? Man, that um, I'm always wanting people to give me the benefit of the doubt. Um, and so I thought that was a really good question. Are we giving people the benefit of the doubt as we engage them online? Hey, we got to take a quick break. When we come back, that's where we're going to pick up with Dan Darling. We're working our way through a list of nine questions to ask yourself before arguing or, you know, frankly, engaging, posting online. We'll be right back. Picking up where we left off in our conversation with Dan Darling from the ERLC. It's the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Church. You can check it out at ERLC.com. We're talking today about a particular article Dan has posted at factsandtrends.net. It's entitled, turning back to my front page, Nine Questions to Ask Yourself Before Arguing Online. We're at number four. Are you giving people the benefit of the doubt? Mm. Well, and this is really important, and I think especially for Christians when we debate other Christians. Um, you know, the Bible says in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, that love chapter, that love believes all things. Now, this, this doesn't mean we should be naive about the reality of evil, but I think our default position should be, let's give people the benefit of the doubt that perhaps people aren't all full of malice and all aren't all out to get out to get us. And I like the quote by former Defense Secretary Robert Gates when he says, don't attribute to malice what can be better explained by incompetence. Sometimes people are just incompetent or imperfect. They're not, they're not full of malice. And, and I really, I'm really, really distressed about the way that Christians are debating each other online over very, very important issues like complementarianism and um, several other things that we really need to give our brothers and sisters in Christ the benefit of that. Let's not assume that they're out to destroy the church. Let's not assume that they, people are heretics right away. Let's let's really pursue the truth. Let's get all the facts, and let's give our brothers brothers and sisters the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, I really, I obviously certainly appreciate um, that particular conversation uh, as a person who. <laughs> Sometimes is not given the benefit of the doubt and and tries to do so for others. So number five, have I considered the humanity of the other person? I really felt like, Dan, you could have shamelessly promoted the Dignity Revolution, your your yes. latest book. Um, you could have shamelessly promoted the Dignity Dignity Revolution right here in this one. That's what you're talking about. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about, um, that – you know, it, our conversations now are mediated through screens and they're mediated through um, these platforms. And so most of our conversations, we're not looking so actually looking someone in the face when we're talking to them. So it's really easy to dehumanize them and, and to look at Twitter, Facebook, all these, com- you know, commenting, you know, and, and look at that person on the other side of Twitter as sort of an avatar to be crushed um, or, or to look at people as the sum total of their, their beliefs or principles, but people are human beings they are well-rounded people. They're, they're more than just their opinions. And so before we fire off that angry tweet or post that angry comment on Facebook or, um, even fire off that nasty email, maybe think the person on the other side of the, that's going to receive that message is a human being created in the image of God. They have a family, they have dreams, they have hopes. And maybe that'll soften our approach, even as we engage in some of these important arguments. All right. Number six is, have I considered my own heart? I thought the questions here were really good. Do I want to genuinely help people 
Or am I trying to make a name for myself? Am I trying to make myself the hero of a story um, that I want the world to hear? And I think that is just a really good sort of self-check for Christians. Number seven, can my words be misinterpreted? I, um, I, want, I went ahead and rewrote this. Um, how will my words be misinterpreted? <laughs> I feel like my words will be misinterpreted, and so anticipating how they're going to be misinterpreted helps me decide whether or not I'm going to put that out there. Yeah, that's really that's a really good way to look at it, Carmen. Because particularly in these short, uh, you know, like these platforms that promote short responses without nuance, without context, uh, we have to be ex- exceedingly clear because our, our our words can easily be misinterpreted and. You know, there's two things to think about here. One, let's not jump to misinterpret people's comments. Again, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. But number two, we have to be clear. And I think this is especially important for Christian leaders. You know, Christian leaders, when they're when we're on these platforms, just kind of randomly saying things, how can this be misinterpreted? I think of James three when James says, Not many of you should be teachers. In other words, he's saying, when you're a teacher of the word of God, when you have a big platform where people are gathering to listen to what you say about God, um, we have a responsibility and a duty to be clear because our words can either give life or they can bring death. And so um, we just have to try to be clear. And, and as you said, how will this be misinterpreted? How, how would this appear in a headline if, if I get it wrong? Yeah, and I just always anticipate that it's going to be um, kept or it's going to be taken out of context. It's not going to be kept in the context where I offered it. And so I, I try to keep that in mind as well. Okay, number eight, could I share the gospel in good conscience with this person after our online argument? That one's obviously really good. And then number nine, would I want my tweet or Facebook post or whatever else I'm doing online, would I want that to be read 10 years later in the newspaper, I rewrote this one also, Dan, um, because I took liberty with what you wrote. And I wrote, would I want my tweet to be read from the pulpit by my pastor? Mm. That's, I mean, this one is the most convicting, and I can't even believe I wrote it because I'm talking to myself here. <laughs> I'm like, oh, man, what I tweeted five years ago, what did I even say back then? Um, right. But we really need to think about that. And, you know, there's increasingly and – and I don't think this is a good journalistic practice, but you're seeing this a lot where um, – if somebody becomes famous or well known for something, journalists will go back and dig up their old tweets and kind of use them against people. I, again, I don't think this is fair, but we we do need to think that whatever we post is permanent. And I think, um, not to sound like an old guy, but I think kids today need to really think about that. Like, you know, you're if you're young, you're just kind of posting whatever you comes to your mind. Um, Ten years later, a future employer could look at that. Uh, or or somebody else could look at that. And beyond that, you know, God sees it. And, and so our, our public words really, we should really be circumspect with what we post. All right, Dan, um, two, two more questions. Um, they're both going to be quick. Um, I know that uh, the ERLC has its national conference at the end of the week. I'm going to actually join you out there in Dallas for it. Tell people what it is and how they can participate um, online. So we are very excited. Um, I mean, it, we're sober because the the topic uh, we uh, it's it's our national conference, and the theme is caring well. It's it's, it's how really churches can address the sexual abuse crisis. Um, and uh, this is not a conference anybody wanted to have. We we had planned another topic, um, but we feel like this is such a a deep crisis in the church about handling 
not only handling cases of abuse, but having churches be ref, a refuge for abuse survivors. Um, the prevalence of, of sexual abuse is so – it's so such a big problem. It's almost hard to get our hands around. But I think we really need to – churches really need to address this. And so we want people to come together to get trained, to get equipped, to – um, be informed about the issue and go back to our churches and really commit to uh, being churches that care well for for the abused. The conference is sold out. We are we're just stunned at the response. We didn't know what the response would be to this. So it does show that there is a desire for churches to really want to get this right. Um, but you can listen online. Uh, so if you go to erlc.com/events, you'll have links there about how you can listen. Uh, and live stream um, this. I think it's really important to maybe gather your your church staff, um, pastoral staff, and really watch some of the content and really be informed and equipped uh, on how to handle uh, and deal with issues of sexual abuse. All right. And then you have um, another book coming out. I know it's coming out really soon, and it's something about Christmas. So will you come back and share that with us uh, once it's available? I would love to. Yes, it's going to be available. Super fun pretty soon. It's called The Characters of Christmas. We go through each of the characters in the Christmas story and how they point to Jesus. Because Dan's also a pastor, in addition to being um, a a person who has a day job that uh, helps all the rest of us do better in communicating the gospel in public. So, Dan, um, thank you so much for being with us today. Again, that's Dan Darling. You can find him at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. That's ERLC. Dot com. You can find uh, the conversation that we had today in terms of the content at factsandtrends.net. We'll be right back. Okay, so uh, the U.S. Congress is supposed to be on recess. Um, some of them are not. The U.S. Supreme Court is, uh, is back, and you may want to know what they are up to. So I thought it would be good to bring Adam Carrington on from Hillsdale College. We're going to talk about some religion-related cases that we're going to watch as the Supreme Court is back in session. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Do you ever watch game shows? We're Wheel of Fortune fans at our house. That click of the wheel has become a familiar sound when we're getting dinner ready. Hi, I'm Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. The most intense moment in a game show is when the contestant has to make a tough choice. Keep their winnings or risk it all for the chance to win even more. I can feel the tension when I put myself in their shoes. What choice would I make? Take the sure thing or risk it all for more? You know, when it comes to money and material things, it's natural to think more will solve all your problems. But when you find yourself in a more mindset, remember this. It's not about having more. It's about knowing you're enough. It's about being a good steward of the gifts God has provided. Thankfully, you don't have to win it all to have a life of contentment, confidence, and generosity. You just have to be a wise steward and know you're enough. If you were to go to uh, hillsdale.edu right now and you were to click on uh, online courses, there's actually one that's launching today entitled uh, Constitution 101, The Meaning and History of the Constitution. I don't know what you're planning uh, to do in terms of your own educational development this fall, 
But here's an opportunity for you. It's a new online course at hillsdale.edu, Constitution 101, the meaning and history of the Constitution. Joining me now from Hillsdale College, Adam Carrington. You can follow him on Twitter, Carrington AM. Dr. Carrington, are you, this is a, you know, maybe not the right question to ask because I don't know if you're helping to teach this course, but are you helping to teach this course? Uh, not this online course. I'm actually teaching our, our school's equivalent of it to our students right now. Uh, the one online course I'm on, uh, which is, I think, interesting for what I think we're going to talk about, is uh, on the Supreme Court. We have another course just on the courts, and I actually give two lectures in, in that series. Okay, so I love that. And I also just really appreciate that you're just inviting all of us to continue growing in our understanding of um, of our own democracy. Like that is, that's a really cool for a college to be doing. I mean, all of us need to be uh, lifelong learners and you you guys at Hillsdale are really inviting us into that in uh, in some pretty great ways. So pass that, uh, pass that thanks along to, uh, to your president and to others. Let's talk about the new session of the Supreme Court. Um, am I right that uh, it's, it's like the 7th of October that they're going to be getting back together? That actually, they're getting back together today for what's oh, called the. Uh, well, you're right about the seventh. In the seventh is the first time they're going to do an oral argument, uh, where a case is going to be argued in front of them. But today, and none of us will get to see this. They're doing what's called the long conference, and what that means is they're basically going to spend all day in a room together, looking at all the petitions that. Uh, litigants have made from lower courts saying, take our case, and they're going to fill out a lot of the rest of the docket. So they've accepted a, a number of cases already. They're going to uh, accept a, a number more that have come in over the summer. And so uh, uh, that, so yeah, they're getting back together today, but we won't all get to see them till the, on the 7th. All right. And there's some big word that we, we truncate down to the word cert. Um, what's the big word? Uh, it, something. Yeah, it's a writ of certiari. And <laughs> what that means, yeah, it's it's they, they love their Latin phrases. And all that means is uh, uh, it basically means calling the record up. And what that means is the Supreme Court almost always hears cases that have already been heard before. They hear it on appeal. And uh, granting that writ just is a fancy way of saying we're going to take the case. We're going to review it and see if we think the right decision was made in the court below. So what they're doing today is they're looking at uh, a list of cases that uh, have come before them, people petitioning to have their case heard at the Supreme Court level, and then uh, they will decide which one of those they are going to grant writ. That's some of the language that people might see in the headlines, um, you know, coming forward. And so I just thought that I would cover that before we acknowledge the cases that we already know the Supreme Court is going to hear. So let's till some of this soil um, what are some of the cases of, of particularly of interest to Christians that we know the Supreme Court is going to hear this session? Yes, and those we will are the ones that have already been taken. And I would say there's sort of two categories of cases that we know they've taken. Uh, one has to do with Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which says that you can't, as an employer, discriminate against your employees, and the quote is, on the basis of sex. Um, and what this has to do, there's a couple cases that have to do with the fallout of Obergefell, Obergefell being the uh, same-sex marriage decision uh, uh, back in 2015. And so you've got uh, one person who was fired from their job 
at least in part because of their sexual orientation. And another person that was fired from uh, their job due to uh, being uh, uh, identifying as transgender. And while, um, you know, the, 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 the religion clauses of the First Amendment aren't directly a part of this case, it has massive implications because the question is, did uh, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act cover discrimination for transgender and sexual orientation? And that's going to be a big thing for, for uh, Christian employers. The other has to do with school funding of religious of students going to religious schools, and this is happening out in Montana. And uh, the question is, Montana is saying they can't give uh, uh, vouchers to go to religious schools for underprivileged children. And there is a lawsuit saying that that violates equal protection for religious persons and it violates uh, uh, the, the free exercise clause because it doesn't allow people to exercise their religion freely. So I think those are the big ones we already have. And then there are a few on uh, that might come up later about abortion and other things. But those are the ones that we have that I think are going to be pretty big. This is going to be very big for the question of religious liberty this year. All right, let's uh, let's take a quick break. When we come back, let's look at some of the things that we uh, that we anticipate the court might take up. Right, some of the some of the petitions maybe that are in front of them um, today, and I think that the the conversation um, about abortion seems to be. I mean, it it seems to be ripe, and you and I can talk about whether or not you see that the same way. Uh, when we come back, I'm talking with uh, Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. You can follow him on Twitter at Carrington AM. We're talking about the new session of the Supreme Court of the United States. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation now with Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. We're talking about the new session of the Supreme Court. We have uh, we have covered some of the cases that the court will be hearing. Uh, those oral arguments begin on October the 7th. Uh, right now, starting today, the Supreme Court is meeting together um, in what is called the Long Conference, and they're looking at petitions before them so that they can fill out the rest of their docket. Um, some of the cases they're looking at are related to, uh, well, sexuality. Uh, some of them are related to um, abortion or life. Others are related to the rights of death row inmates. Those are some of the petitions they're looking at. Uh, Adam, what do you think, what do you anticipate um, uh, would, uh, the court might see as ripe or something that they can't resist or something that they sort of of necessity have to take up because they left it undone? Well, one thing I think they're going to eventually have to take is a case like uh, what what's called the Arlene Flowers case out in Washington, and uh, a lot of the listeners may be, be familiar with this. It's basically Masterpiece Cake Shop 2.0. And if you know about Masterpiece Cake Shop, they kind of kick the can down the road about what's the line between religious liberty or free speech and uh, uh, protections for uh, sexual orientation. And so uh, this case, they have several times sent back down or tried to avoid. And so it's back up in front of them. Uh, um, and so that's one I could see. I think eventually they're going to have to take an abortion case. There's a case coming out of Louisiana 
that is uh, about uh, restrictions that are similar to the ones that were struck down in Texas. But I think uh, with all the abortion laws that are being passed across the country and states, uh, they're going to have to take up that and and we're going to have to get to know where with two new justices, where does the justices stand on abortion? So those those are a couple. One more I'd throw in is there's a uh, another a sexuality case about um, Catholic foster services in the state of Pennsylvania and whether the fact that they don't want to put children in foster relationships that are same-sex couples, is that protected or not protected by the First Amendment? So uh, this could be a big uh, term for abortion. And again, there could be even more issues related to religious liberty that could come up if the court decides to take them. One more that we might... Um that we might highlight for folks that they could anticipate uh, would be um, related to the rights of death row inmates. Um, am I remembering correctly that that the Supreme Court actually intervened um, in an execution? I'm, I'm recalling that this was a delayed execution. Okay, now I found it. Patrick Henry Murphy, a Buddhist inmate in Texas who was being denied access to a spiritual advisor, um, and he is uh, he is now asking the court to, um, you know, to basically change the law of the state of Texas. Is this one that, first of all, how how does the Supreme Court decide whether or not it's the kind of case they would take and whether or not it's a specific case they will take? Like, I think that being being reminded that it's not just something that we think there should be some clarity on. There actually has to be some basis for it. Right. They they have a whole list of issues because that they'll get 9,000 to 10,000 petitions mm. in a year. Uh, I don't know how they and their clerks get through all of them, but they'll only take about 80 to 90, sometimes even less. And and what they're looking for is not to resolve every bad case uh, or affirm every good case. They're looking for um, consistency in the law. They're looking to resolve uh uh, problems where maybe lower courts don't agree with each other or where they think that they need to revisit uh, a, a law that is, that is unconstitutionally infringing on the rights of individuals. So that's the kind of things they look for. They also look for a case uh, when you're talking about the case itself, what they call clean facts. If if the case is really confusing as far as what really happened, they don't want to take it because then they can't really give a lot of clarity to lower courts on how to decide because they'll get stuck in the mire of what really happened. They want clean ideas that they can say, here's clearly what the constitutional question is and here's what we think about it. And you're right, Murphy v. Collier actually I think would be a very interesting case because it does have to do with whether someone uh, in the execution chamber can have a person, uh, a minister or a clergyman of their own faith uh, ministering to them. And, and Texas allows Christian and Muslim chaplains, but it doesn't really allow others. And what would be interesting about this is so many of these religious liberty cases that are coming down or going up are Christian-based. And it would be very interesting to watch, uh, uh, and I think what would end up being an affirmation of the rights of even those who don't adhere to the majority religion of the country. And I think that would be a very interesting case to take up because it'd be interesting to say um, – if you're going to treat uh, 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 this faith uh, in this way, what rights does that also entail for, for Christians as well? 
So can we um, can we pivot? I feel confident that uh, in in recent days you've had lots of conversations about what the Constitution says about impeachment. And I, would I be would I be correct in making that assumption? That has come up a time or two. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I figured since I have you this morning, uh, and you teach the Constitution, and people are obviously interested in not only the particular process we find ourselves in right now, but um, but how the Constitution sort of conceived of this of this idea. And then when we get to particular words, we think of uh, of the word misdemeanor. OK, first of all, we think of high crimes as actually something that's criminal, something that's illegal. And we think of misdemeanor as something that is criminal, but, you know, doesn't rise to the level of a felony. So can you can you talk a little bit with us um, about I mean, what what did the framers have in mind? Um, and then I have a follow up question that a listener asked me, and that's this. Um, if Congress uh, if, if Congress impeaches the president and then the Senate does not uh, does not confirm that impeachment, could this Congress impeach him again on something else? Like, it, it, is it something that is conceived of like double jeopardy? Right. Um, uh, the 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 reason the framers the, the, uh, even put in impeachment was there was an idea that someone could uh, so egregiously abuse their office or do something so terrible in office that they no longer should have the trust of the American people or uh, the or should hold the reins of power. And um, as far as the the wording, originally in the Constitutional Convention, they only said uh, treason and bribery. And they added high crimes and misdemeanors, and treason and bribery have fairly technical definitions. They added uh, high crimes and misdemeanors, I think, to include any other actual crimes. But uh, misdemeanors has a more murky history. We've come to have a more technical definition now. But really, in the debates at the Constitutional Convention, the the thought was to make it kind of a grab bag of – could there be an abuse of office that doesn't fall in the other categories that Congress determines is not worthy of someone staying in office? So it's not as precise as we think. It really is. Have you committed a crime against the country or at least an abuse of power against the country, I should say, that isn't worthy of not being uh, still in office? As far as impeachment, um, we've never had someone try to impeach a president twice. But uh, what I would say is uh, the Congress can try to impeach a president only once for one specific action or one specific accusation. The only way they could try to impeach the president again is if they impeached him for an entirely new allegation. Otherwise, I think that it would be a, a kind of double jeopardy that would not be allowed. I mean, it's just a basic idea of our courts that the courts should only get one shot or the prosecution should only get one shot at you. And I think that would be upheld in this court. It would have to be an entirely different allegation. I'm just here to bring you new ideas and thoughts about what might happen. I feel like that's my, uh, you know, as as an outsider to the uh, conversation that you're having uh, you know, with smarty pants people, uh, I feel like I need to bring you the questions people want to know. So there you go. That That's no, something that's a, for you to muse on. 
That's a great question, and 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 it's one to keep in mind as far as what we got to think of this process as like a trial, even though Congress is doing it. Uh, and that's a kind of weird that Congress is doing a judicial thing, but the founders had the reasons for that. Uh, but no, no, that that I, that's a listener thinking. I think well through what. Uh, what what the possibilities could be, and that forces us to think about what the process is itself. It's always an intellectual feast. Thank you so much, Dr. Carrington, for being with us. We look forward to the next conversation we'll have with you. You guys can find Adam uh, on Twitter at Carrington AM. You can also find him at Hillsdale College. We'll be right back. Okay, I want to encourage you today to be in the Word of God before you get out there into the world that God so loves uh, in order that you might rightly represent Him. Like, let's just be mindful. We are, whatever else we're doing today, we are representing Christ to the world. I've told you before, uh, you know, my mom used to say as we would leave the house, hey, hey, remember, you may be the only Bible somebody else reads today. Now, that was um, maybe a burden too great for a child to bear. But it's not a burden too great for you and I to bear in the culture today. It's a good reminder that we, in fact, may be the only version of the Bible that people are reading today. And so are they getting, um, you know, are they getting an exact representation or as close to it as we can muster? Are they, are they getting a representation of Christ and a representation of, uh, of God and his character and his goodness and his grace you know, the best we can. And remember, we don't do that on our own or by ourselves. We do it because we are people literally possessed of the Holy Spirit. So it's October. Halloween comes at the end of this month. Go ahead and consider that you are possessed. You are a person possessed. Go ahead and be possessed of the Holy Spirit today and live that uh, live that spiritual reality out loud in front of others that you can represent Christ to the world um, and, and just show forth the gospel. Be shiny. That's that's you know, go be shiny, you know, when all else fails, just shine your light before others that they might uh, see your good works and glorify our father who is in heaven. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.